Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Those plastic bottles you see floating in our rivers and oceans, or plastic bags blowing across sidewalks, every one of them will break down into smaller and smaller bits, eventually becoming invisible, but still very much in our environment. Microplastic, writes Matt Simon, is the pernicious glitter that has bastardized the whole earth, a forever residue from the party that is consumerism. We'll talk with Simon about his new book called A Poison Like No Other, how microplastics corrupted our planet and our bodies, and he'll tell us what we can do about it. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Plastic is designed to last, and last it does. It flakes throughout its life into microplastics, or fragments, fibers, films less than five millimeters long. And these microplastics are everywhere. They're in our water and our food, even the air we breathe, and they're in our bodies. They're often composed of forever chemicals, which take thousands of years to break down. Yet, according to Matt Simon, their effect on humans is still largely unknown. Simon is a science journalist for Wired and the author of the new book, A Poison Like No Other, How Microplastics Corrupted Our Planet and Our Bodies. Matt Simon joins us today. Welcome to Forum, Matt. Thank you. Good to be here. I wish under better circumstances, but uh, alas. (laughs) Well, I'm glad you are here and that you are glad to be here. Before I started reading your book, my producer, Caroline Smith, said it was like uh, the scene in The Matrix when Neo learns the truth about his existence. And now I understand why. You talk about tiny, almost invisible plastic specks constantly falling from the sky or what's been called plastic rain. And you know this because you saw this. Can you describe seeing it? Sure. It's uh, It was quite the adventure for me as not a particularly outdoorsy person. Uh, but I went to Utah to visit a uh, atmospheric scientist who's studying 
the plastic that is literally falling out of the sky. So what she has done is put this uh, plastic collection unit essentially on the top of a mountain in remote Utah. And we hiked up that mountain and, and found it. Um, it's a very simple device, but by positioning these things throughout the American West, uh, she published a paper a couple of years ago that was absolutely stunning. She calculated that just from the 6% of the protected Western areas in the United States, we are getting on the order of 300 million plastic bottles falling out of the sky as microplastics each year. That is 6% of the country's area. So scaling that up, it's literally billions of bottles falling out of the sky on the United States each year. This was something that scientists just didn't know about uh, not that long ago. Microplastic science is very, very new, but it's, it's pioneering scientists like this one in Utah who are really showing just how thoroughly this stuff has corrupted every corner of this planet. So outside, just these little specks are falling. The scientist has been able to catch and see some of it. Even as we sit here in this studio together, we're surrounded by it? Or just as listeners are sitting in their homes or cars or places of work, are they essentially bathing in it? It's unfortunately one of the worst places as far as microplastic pollution is concerned is, is these indoor environments. There have been a number of studies that have quantified just how much of this stuff is in the air. And that's coming in large part from the clothes that we're wearing. Some two-thirds of clothing is now made out of synthetic fibers. It's plastic. It's very soft plastic, but it's plastic nonetheless. Um, that all, as we move around flakes off. Um, there was one calculation that found that something like a billion fibers come off of you each year from just your clothing, just from moving around. That all then settles on the floor and then gets kicked up when kids are moving around or we're, we're moving our feet around and something on the order of a couple hundred thousand of these fibers are falling in your typical living room each day. And this is the, the main concern among macroplastic scientists is that because we know almost nothing about the potential human health effects, kids could be potentially much more exposed. That's, that's the big problem here. Yeah, you've talked about how infants and toddlers are essentially born into and eating a microplastic soup. How do we know that infants likely have higher concentrations than adults or toddlers have higher concentrations than adults? This is largely due to plastic bottles for formula. So when you prepare baby formula in hot liquid in plastic, that is really the perfect conditions to break down that plastic. Plastic is very tough, um, but it does come apart. That's largely due outdoors to UV bombardment, but also heat. If you are preparing infant formula in that that plastic bottle, there's a calculation that something on the order of a million particles are coming off uh, per day, and that's that's ingested per per baby. And we know almost nothing about what that means for their health, but we also know that there are lots of component chemicals in there that are proven toxic to humans. And and the drinking water that is being mixed with the formula in those plastic bottles is is sullied too. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 everything. It's uh, you know bottled water is particularly bad, obviously, but um, in our drinking water as well, there's microplastics. But California is actually leading the way here. Our our water board is is being very aggressive in studying 
not only the concentrations that are in our drinking water, um, but the potential impacts that has on human health. Um, but also when that water is out in ecosystems, because the stuff is falling out of the sky in such concentrations, what does that mean for plants and animals? And that's an, another frontier in microplastic science. Can you describe how I, we, we're here in the Bay Area right now, which is known for its great drinking water. Just how do the microplastics get in there? What, what are the sources, biggest sources? Yeah, I mean, Hetch Hetchy is lovely water. We're, we're lucky to have it. Uh, we don't have to filter it. Um, we, we disinfect it, obviously, before it gets to our taps. But um, we're, nobody around the world is filtering tap water for microplastics because we didn't really realize the extent of the problem until very recently. Um, it is getting into water from just a stunning array of sources. So we have obviously the stuff falling out of the sky, but also tire particles. Tires are made of synthetic rubber. That's a plastic. Um, when your tires wear down, you have to go get them replaced every once in a while. Where do you think that goes? Those are the little particles coming off on the streets, flushing into bodies of water when it rains. That has been linked to die-offs of salmon in, in Washington state. There's a particular chemical that's really bad for those fish. Cigarette butts are another one. We throw away, I say we, I'm not a smoker, but humans throw away trillions of cigarette butts into the environment each year. Each of those has tens of thousands of fibers that are made out of plastic that break down and get into bodies of water. That's how these water sources are being corrupted. Um, no, nowhere is untouched, unfortunately. I, I hate to be here and say that, but it's everywhere. Yeah. Well, I feel like I, I need to, at this moment, just say let's not panic. I appreciated you talking a little bit about how California is making some efforts here because it is important for us to feel like there is something being done or there is at least the beginnings of recognition that this is as ubiquitous as it is. I, I do have to ask you, once you learn the extent of this or, or uh, yeah, I guess, learn the extent of this and how much we still don't know, actually, how how have you lived with this knowledge? Because I found even after reading this book, I couldn't stop unseeing plastic <laughs> everywhere. Therapy helps. <laughs> I will say that. Um, a healthy dose of nihilism. No, no, no. Um, I'm actually... Um, I, I know the extent of it. That has been problematic uh, for my mental health, <laughs> uh, especially because I started writing this book during the pandemic, which was a brilliant idea, as if I needed another reason to feel bad about the world. Um, but there are actually a lot of ways that we can reduce our exposure, um, but also these larger systemic fixes to start turning down the tap of microplastic flowing into the environment. Um, I, I don't want people to get dejected and I don't want people to feel responsible for this problem in any way because it is corporations that have produced this just stunning amount of plastic that are responsible. Do not feel bad yourself, um, but there are systemic changes that we can make to, to really face down this problem. So start a little bit with what we can do to reduce our exposure in the home, for example, since you're saying it's one of the biggest sources or there's so much of it in, inside and in indoor spaces, homes, offices, and so on? Because so much of it is settling on the ground, vacuuming is, is a huge mitigation. Um, you then have to be careful, though, how do you dispose of the, the dust in that vacuum? You can't just kick it back up in the air because plastics are so light. These little fibers take to the air very easily. Um, that is uh, that's the, the struggle here in a number of different ways to mitigate against microplastic pollution. The other big one is is when we wash our clothes, that wastewater 
there might be like a million fibers per load of laundry in that wastewater that flushes to a treatment facility. Um, we can get aftermarket filters for our washing machine. I have one at home. It works works very well. But then the same way, we have to figure out how do we dispose of the stuff that we're actually gathering? Uh, how do we put it in the trash and make sure that at some point in the chain of, of collection and disposal, that it doesn't just take to the air again? Right. These, these are the, the, the struggles, but this is where I think researchers are, are making headway and also the, the manufacturers of these, these solutions. I think in the coming years, we'll see much more of them and there will be more ways to reduce our exposure. I mean, as you say, the need to safely dispose of things once you've collected them with the washing machine thing, sending them back or mailing them back, I guess, is one way of doing it. But you were also, when you talk about corporations and so on, that you'd really like to see filters and things mandated on washing machines. Like, that's what needs to happen. Why is it so important for you to say, to stress that the onus should not be or people should not feel like they're entirely responsible for this? This is also a big debate in climate change. Um, Should we as individuals fly less? I think, yes, fine. Fly less as an individual. Um, Perhaps that that helps other people make the same decision and then you get less people flying. Um, But I, as with climate change, I don't want people to feel personally responsible for microplastic pollution. We need to hold the manufacturers to account here. So France is actually mandating by 2025 that all washing machines come with these filters pre-installed. It's entirely possible to have them. We just haven't had them in the United States because we have lint filters on dryers instead. So shifting the burden from individual consumers onto the corporations responsible for this mess is going to be key going forward because what you and I do on an individual level is great and all, uh, and perhaps that inspires other people, but we need bigger systemic changes. This is a huge problem that is beyond you and me. We're talking with Matt Simon about microplastics, how they're everywhere, and what we can do about it. Simon has a new book called A Poison Like No Other, How Microplastics Corrupted Our Planet and Our Bodies. And I want to invite you, our listeners, to join the conversation. First, how are you now that you've heard this? Do you feel overwhelmed by the amount of plastic in your life? What have you tried to do to limit the amount? And of course, if you have questions about what materials or what things you have that contain plastic that you've been wondering about, feel free to ask those as well. You can email forum at kqed.org. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum. And you can always call us, 866-733-6786. Again, that number, 866-733-6786. We'll have more after the break. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Here's what we're talking about tomorrow. The ransomware hunting team. They're a bit like the Justice League of the dark web, a largely unknown group of coders who've cracked some of the most complex ransomware attacks around the world. We'll hear how they fight cybercrime to help protect hospitals and schools and you from reporters at ProPublica. And today we are talking about microplastics, and we want to hear from you, listeners. What are your questions about what contains plastic? Have you tried to reduce how much plastic you use? What are your reactions to what you're hearing about the ubiquity of plastic? You can email forum at kqed.org, find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram, or call us at 866-733-6786. We're talking with Matt Simon. And Matt, clearly going outside from your hike in Utah, offers no relief from microplastics. You write even the ocean is, quote, burping it into the air. So so how is that affecting ocean life? Microplastic science actually began in the ocean. Right. Um, I feel like I remember uh, yeah. some of the research coming out, what they were finding a few years ago, pre-pandemic. Yeah. I mean, even as, as long as 15 years ago. And, and in fact, um, it was NOAA that actually came up with the definition of, of five less than five millimeters is the size of microplastics um, in the early 2000s. Uh, but we have been finding microplastics in every corner of the ocean. And as we have the just exponential production of plastic over the, the last couple of decades, and really actually since the 1940s, uh, you see exponential amounts of microplastics in ocean sediments. So you can actually dig down and go back decades, and it maps perfectly the exponential rise in production with the exponential pollution of these sediments with microplastics. There has been a lot of good science recently that has started to pick apart the potential impacts on ocean life. Um, NOAA defined microplastics in part because we had all heard of macroplastics, which is the bottles and the bags and sea turtles and, and other life like that choking on that sort of thing. Microplastics are actually getting into the bodies of much smaller creatures. So zooplankton, which are these little, little tiny animals that are the base of the food web in the oceans, are small enough to ingest these things and choke to death on them. Um, there are very good videos from researchers actually showing this in real time, how they ingest microfibers in particular and choke. So the, the issue here is probably going to be largely that these animals are filling up their bodies with plastic, which decreases their appetite for actual food, and then that can have ripple effects through these ecosystems. Um, so it began, the research began in the ocean, but now, as you say, we're actually finding that the ocean has become so saturated with microplastic that it is burping the stuff up. When bubbles come to the surface in the ocean, they pop and fling a bunch of aerosols into the air. That gets picked up by sea breezes, and researchers have done some really interesting experiments showing that microplastics are going along for the ride. So that is then blowing on shore as a sea breeze. Um, and it's just... The Mariana Trench is one of the most polluted places in the ocean. Uh, thousands of microfibers per liter of sediment. It's it's madness. It's it's absolutely everywhere. And scientists are just beginning to figure out the ecological effects. What are nurdles? 
Nurdles, uh, a great name that the industry, I don't think, really appreciates. That They call them pellets. Nurdles are these little things that look like fish eggs almost. They are little pieces of plastic. That's the pre-production stuff. So that's melted down into bottles and bags and things like that. A couple of issues with nurdles is that they are very easy to lose along that supply chain. They spill in huge numbers around the world. And they, again, look just like fish eggs. And that is on the menu for a lot of sea creatures that are mistaking these things for food and filling up their stomachs and decreasing their appetite for actual food, in addition to all the chemicals leaking from those plastics while in the digestive system. And they're coming from, you say, the manufacturers because they're melting down those little nurdles to make the plastic um, or the stuff that's going to form the plastic material or the solid plastic. Uh, and, and you were talking about the chemicals that a plastic producer or what is included in the plastic product itself, that there's very little that is known about what those chemicals are. And the ones that we do know about are already pretty bad. Why do we know so little about how many chemicals are in plastic products? The industry won't tell us. They don't put a, a ingredient list on their products, not to mention just look around you at all the sources of, of plastic. Those are all different kinds of plastic made in different ways. The best chemists can do is actually reverse engineer plastics to find out what chemicals are are in them. And uh, at least 10,000 is is one of the good counts of different chemicals in plastics, many of which uh, are known to be toxic to plants and animals and humans. And because the industry isn't telling us, we don't know exactly what is in, say, the shirt that you're wearing or this microphone that I'm speaking into because they just don't need to tell us. And as you were saying before, the likelihood that they are benign... <laughs> Well, at least the early research into things that we do know about, like BPA and and so on, doesn't sound very promising. Not promising at all. Um, The issue, I think, the biggest issue for humans is going to be a class of chemicals called endocrine-disrupting chemicals. This is a, a huge class of chemicals, many of which are in plastics, BPA being one of them that has been phased out. But manufacturers are just phasing in alternatives that are as toxic if as toxic, if not more toxic. Um, And that is in concentrations that can actually be quite low and still be harmful. Endocrine disrupting chemicals are are interesting in that way. Even at a very low dose, harmful. At a high dose, also harmful. Um, And then we then have to start thinking about any number of other organisms out there. What of the 10,000 chemicals in plastics could be harming them. Um, And there have been a lot of studies recently showing that in concentrations of microplastic that we already have in the environment, a number of species are already faring poorly. And that is only increasing uh, in the coming years as plastic production increases exponentially. Let me go to caller Steve in Portland, Oregon. Hi, Steve. You're on. Thank you very much. Hello. I have a question about the size of the particles. You mentioned that they were five millimeters and less. How small do they get? And with an N95 or something like that that can filter 0.3 micron, would that take out most of the particles? Mm, Thanks, Steve. It's a fantastic question. And um, this is actually a a subject of some debate in the, the microplastic community. How small do these things get? It could be that they get down to a nanoscale. So this, we haven't even talked about nanoplastics, really. Nanoplastics are smaller than a millionth of a meter. Uh, very, very small, small enough to get into individual cells, which is problematic in its own right. Um, but the thinking is that these particles, as they abrade in the environment, get down to a size 
in which they're not really subjected to the forces of abrasion anymore. And they reach kind of a sweet spot on that nanoscale and they stay at that spot and tend to not get any smaller. That is, it's not really breaking down into component chemicals. It's staying as a particle. Um, because that is getting into individual cells of basically every creature and plant on this planet, what does that then mean? Um, the nanoplastics are very difficult and expensive to detect, so that, that field is just getting going, um, but not looking particularly good. Yeah, you, you say that field is just getting going. Where is the science right now? It also sounds like the science is behind the invention of alternatives that plastic companies are using as there are new scientific discoveries about the harms of some of the chemicals they have already used. Where would you say we are? Because I know you started really studying this, what, three or like really intensely three or four years ago. Is that right? Microplastics? Yeah, right. And, and so where was the science then? And has it gotten a lot better now? We in, in recent years have actually gotten much more studies on human health. And that's going to be the big thing going forward. Probably the next five, 10 years that are probably going to be tying microplastics to certain issues in, in human health. Um, I quote a researcher in the book who's saying that we know 99, we don't know 99% of what microplastics do to human health. We're, we've got 1%, which is, which is a start. But in the coming years, and in the past few years, we've been getting good studies uh, uh, linking particular chemicals in plastics generally to early death, um, perhaps hundreds of thousands of them in the United States alone. Um, we don't know the mechanisms there. It's a, it's just a, it's a link. Um, but I think going forward, we're going to see more studies find them in, in places in the human body. So we have found them in blood and placentas and lungs. They're getting trapped in our lungs in, in pretty high numbers. And we know for sure that no particulate matter is good to have in the lungs. Uh, so we'll see. We'll find more studies probably in the human brain. We'll, we'll almost certainly find them. And what consequences that might have, we don't know. But look out in the next five, 10 years, certainly for, I think, really good links to, to human health issues. Well, let me go to Nancy in Belmont. Hi, Nancy. You're on. Hi. Hi there. I'm so glad you wrote this book and that you're having this conversation. I've struggled with my own um, use of plastic and through packaging and items and have been really, really struggling to try to not purchase any or, or, you know, to not have it in my house. And I recycle like by reusing all the time. But the bottom line, it comes down to money because by choosing not to have plastic, I'm having to spend more for other things. Yes. And the problem is there's a cost for this. And so I as a consumer struggle this. And the thing is, if we say, let's pass those costs on to the corporations, which I agree with, they're going to protest against regulation because they don't want to pay the cost. And we all have to realize there are costs for these things, yeah. and we're paying them, although we don't know it. Nancy, I think you laid out the conundrum really well. So a couple of things. Of course, Matt, you can respond to what Nancy's saying about the affordability of plastic. Um, and you have called it a miracle material in some ways, right? It is. like It's super light. Um, it's super strong. And it is extremely profitable 
for these companies. That's the the sticking point here, that it it takes a lot less money for them to ship things in plastic than in in glass or cardboard. It's It's just a better material for that. Turns out to be a catastrophic material for the environment and for, for human health. And uh, like the caller is saying here, it's, it's expensive to shift away and it's expensive to actually be more mindful about using less plastic. So um, I struggle with the same thing. And, and, and you're also getting at this idea that we need systemic change. As individuals, we can take steps to uh, you know, lessen our emissions of microplastics and lessen the amount of plastic that we're buying in general. But we need our government and we need to, especially to elect politicians that take this seriously. This is, this is directly tied to climate change as well. We need politicians that look at this as two sides of the same coin, microplastics and climate. Um, only then will we make progress in, in really reducing our dependence on plastics. And I think California of late has been leading the way here. And often what goes in California goes elsewhere. So I see a little bit of hope there. Yeah. or And also directly to Nancy's point in crafting legislation to try to make it so that the costs are not borne by consumers uh, to the same extent that they have been, often have been in the past, uh, there are, I mean, just to say a little bit more about what you called the plasticine progress trap, it is something that has been used to make things safer, cars safer, it's ubiquitous in medical equipment and so on. Uh, Plastics are something that we cannot live without in a lot of ways now, though at the same time, there are plenty of ways that it's being used uh, that are kind of ridiculous, like single-use plastics, you were saying, is one of the ways that California is taking this seriously? Yeah, certainly. Uh, Making, I think, pretty good progress there. It's just absolutely insane that you go to a market and see a cucumber wrapped in single-use plastic. Cucumbers have their own skins. They don't need any help. Thank you very much. Uh, as you say, there are plenty of, of proper uses for plastics, medical devices. They make cars lighter. That reduces the amount of fuel they use. Um, single-use plastic is out of control. It is full-tilt insane, the amount of plastic that we're using. And we're, we were sold as, like, this is a benign material. You consumers, don't worry about it. We'll just wrap everything in plastic. Everything's going to be fine, when that is certainly not the case. And just a, an extra point to say that if we levy massive taxes on these companies and use that money for other kinds of microplastic mitigation, so like roadside gardens actually collect a lot of the microplastics coming off of tires, in addition to helping with stormwater drainage, in addition to beautifying a landscape. So there's, and I try to get as many solutions in the book as I can. you can't. There are ways to do these seemingly small solutions that have multiple benefits at once. Again, Matt Simon's book is A Poison Like No Other, How Microplastics Corrupted Our Planet and Our Bodies. Whitney writes, I'm feeling overwhelmed, but also appreciative of this conversation. I have two small children, so hearing how I can reduce exposure is helpful. Would you recommend using glass, Tupperware, or bottles instead of plastic? How about microwaving? Is microwaving food in plastic containers harmful? Don't ever do that. Don't don't ever freeze plastic in Tupperware. Don't microwave it. Uh, again, that these are the forces that are best able to tear apart plastic uh, temperatures and out in the environment UV bombardment. Um, yeah, glass is is preferred. Um, it's going to be more expensive, but in the long run, it's going to be better for you. 
Um, just yeah, and it, the th- I think the sneaky thing here is that we are surrounded by more plastic than we realize. I don't think a lot of people realize that their clothes are made out of plastic, or their couch, or their carpet. Um, it'll be harder, I think, to get those out of our lives. But I, and this is what I try to do in the book: is like just to be more mindful of the ways that the plastics industry has surrounded us with this material, uh, really without us noticing in a lot of cases. Let me go to caller Scott in Martinez. Hi, Scott. Hi there. Uh, real quick, uh, we are actually um, a plastic fasteners distributor. Um, grandfather started the business 60 years ago. Uh, we you know, do screws, nuts, washers, and all sorts of plastic, nylon, polypropylene, carbonate, et cetera. And, um, you know, I'm imagining, you know, we obviously don't know what all our end use is, um, but uh, mainly like permanent applications, you know, like in furniture, planes, et cetera. Um, and, but I'm just wondering, uh, hearing this conversation, like how much are we, are we part of the problem uh, at all? <laughs> I, I, I really don't think, I, uh, not your case, I don't think. I, I'm perfectly fine with these more permanent uses of, of plastic. Again, it's, it's a miracle material. We've, we've, it's become popular for very good reasons. Um, it can serve those, those cases like you're using them for in this more permanent way. What I'm really after is single-use plastic, which is, again, just a, a, a mad concept. Um, and we can actually start thinking about new materials, uh, more cardboard, more glass, wrapping food in banana leaves, like s- small things like that are going to be important going forward. And I, and, I, and I don't really want people like yourself to feel bad about what you're producing. Um, it's these larger plastic corporations that have deliberately flooded the planet with this material just to make a buck. Are they using, thanks Scott for the call, are they using recycled plastic? Are they recycling their own plastic to produce new plastic products? No. No, I mean we we had the plastics industry sold us on recycling around the '80s and, and '90s um, as this thing that was our responsibility as consumers. It's our fault that this is a, a huge problem because we're not recycling enough. In reality, less than 10% of plastics have ever been recycled. That's worldwide. There was a recent study that found in the United States that's now 5%. There's a 5% chance that what you're throwing in the bin is going to be actually recycled. That's due to a number of reasons. Primarily, it's not profitable to recycle. If this were a state-run operation, it wouldn't have to be profitable. We'd be recycling much more. The other issue is that plastics are now much more complicated than they used to be. So like a a little pouch of baby food is multi-layered with different kinds of plastics. That's extremely difficult to recycle. What we've been doing in the developed world is shipping all the plastic that we can't recycle to developing nations. That has been piling up there where they burn it in a lot of cases, which is catastrophic for human health and the environment. Um, And a lot of it is reaching the ocean that way. So recycling is fundamentally broken, and it's going to be this crutch that the plastics industry keeps pushing as a solution that allows them to keep producing as much plastic as they want, when the solution here is to stop with all the plastic. Because if we feel like it's recyclable recyclable and being recycled, then we are willing to use by plastic products and they're able to produce more and more new plastic product. Exactly. Our fault, not theirs. Matt Simon is with us talking about microplastics, how they corrupted our planet and our bodies. We'll have more with him after the break and with you, listeners. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim.
Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about microplastics, how they basically corrupted every aspect of our planet down to our bodies with Matt Simon, a science journalist at Wired. His book is A Poison Like No Other. And you, our listeners, are sharing your questions about plastic, the role it plays in your life, how you're trying to limit it. Um, And... uh, Wallace writes, for example, after finding out all my recycling is a waste of time, I'm just going to dump everything. I buy glass and stay away from plastics as much as I can, but they are everywhere, from bread ties to restaurant utensils. So dumping everything, one of the reactions I had, too, was I wanted to just take all the plastic in my home and just get rid of it. But I realized that's probably just contributing to the problem. I mean, do throw it in the recycling. I don't want people to not throw <laughs> to their recycling. recycling in the recycling because some of it's getting recycled. This comes back, and I keep I hate to keep harping on it, but these systemic issues that we need to address. This is not an individual problem. This is us forcing our politicians to put in place better recycling programs that are funded by the plastics industry. This is their problem. Uh, We should not feel bad about the failure of government and plastics companies pushing this on us as a solution when they knew full well it was not. Um, Yeah, please, please do keep recycling. But I think we're also starting to make headway into a more circular economy where we're maybe reusing uh, more glass bottles. So we go to like refillable stores to refill our soaps and things like that. That's that's great. I keep thinking for some reason about... um, general stores in the wild west like you would take a burlap sack and get your beans or whatever which would be at the store in a burlap sack of beans that wouldn't be wrapped in single-use plastic and i think on at least a local level we'll see more of that where we just won't need to use as much plastic Um, that's gonna be challenging in other communities that don't have access to fresh foods um, which is a whole other equity aspect of of this Um, but please do throw it in the recycling bin because it's going to get better. I think, yeah, there's there's a small percentage that's recycled now. But if we keep putting pressure on politicians, I think it's going to get better. And uh, in the end, we'll we'll thank ourselves for it. Let me go to Bianca in San Jose. Hi, Bianca, you're on. Yeah, hi. Um, Yeah, so my comment was, um, I know uh, large corporations have bigger responsibility to change the way we do manufacturing and how we um, produce things for the consumer. But they, I mean, they do most of the things to please the consumer, right? If the consumer is not willing to buy, they have no business, right? They cannot make money. So yeah. I think consumer has a bigger responsibility, just like, you know, the big corporation. So 
like the previous caller um, said, um, people buy plastic because it's cheaper, right? It's more convenient and uh, it's easy, you know, to use. So yeah. So I think my comment is, yeah, I mean, because as a consumer, we have a very big responsibility to get it off, you know, stop using plastic for convenience. Well, Bianca, all, thanks. All costs, yeah. And I would say at least having some sense of what we can do to mitigate it, even if we shouldn't let a sense of responsibility end up beating us down, is that you do feel like you can do something about it, which is an important thing to feel in the face of what you are uncovering, Matt. Holly writes, does the speaker know of any attempts to ban compostable plastic bags? When the compostable bags do make it into industrial composting facilities, the compost ends up in the soil, in the groundwater, and taken up into plants that we then eat. Nearly all compostable bags are still plastic and should not be put into compost. This was definitely, again, a moment of, wow, really? (laughs) Yeah, in the book, yeah. Uh, It's just a big bucket of cold water that I'm throwing on everything in the book. Yes, compostable bags, highly problematic. So the issue there is, yes, they're made out of plastic still. When they're breaking apart in the soil, they're just breaking into microplastics all the same. Also, they are engineered for a very specific set of conditions. So usually that's industrial composting where temperatures are very high for long periods of time. That is not the same as the environment. So if that compostable bag makes it out to the ocean, that's a completely different set of conditions, and it's not going to break down as well. Um, I hadn't heard of of any bans on them, um, but this is actually a huge contributor to microplastics in soil. So what we do is, uh, what I mentioned that we're washing our clothes and microfibers are flushing to a wastewater treatment facility, something like 10% of the fibers actually get out to sea in wastewater. The remaining 9% are sequestered in something called sludge, which is human waste that is spread on fields as fertilizers. We are spreading concentrated microplastic on our crops. That is in addition to compost that is made up partly of these compostable bags that have broken into little pieces, in addition to all the plastic that we use to grow the crops. Um, It is absolutely an emergency right now that we are loading our fields and our soils with plastics from multiple sources, and we don't know what what effect that's going to have on our crops. What do we know about the effect plastics are having on climate change? You touched on this earlier, but do we know how much it is contributing to a warming climate and so on? There are a couple of ways that are are actually, I think, quite interesting. So one, we know that there are a tremendous amount of emissions associated with just producing plastic. It's a fossil fuel, um, and it takes a lot of energy to produce it. Um, There was one estimate that by 2050, uh, we'll have something like 600 coal plants worth of emissions just from the plastics industry. So while we're decarbonizing our economy and getting rid of coal plants, we're having the emissions associated with plastics increasing exponentially as the production goes up. I think also more interestingly, there has been some modeling showing what are these plastics doing once they're in the environment? They're made out of carbon, right? And some good experiments have shown that they are actually off-gassing carbon, methane in particular, which is an extremely potent greenhouse gas. This is concentrated carbon. That's what plastic is. Uh, These experiments showed that they actually increase exponentially those emissions as they break down in the environment, as a particle gets smaller and smaller. Um, And we don't know also what effect they have up in the atmosphere. There's tons and tons of them floating around above our heads right now. Are they somehow absorbing energy from the sun because they're often darkly colored? Um, That makes them absorb more energy. Are they, uh, like, 
making clouds brighter by uh, attracting water vapor and changing weather patterns. And that has an effect on climate as well. There are all these unknowns, but we know for sure that there are lots of emissions associated with the production of plastic in general. Hmm. So we are just beginning, well, it's raising a lot more questions that we need to investigate as as a result of its impact on our climate. Uh, Elaine writes, we need to put a price on carbon-based energy in a socially just way through cashback carbon pricing. It would slightly increase the price of plastic, pricing most of our plastic use out of the market, reducing our use of new plastic, stopping almost all new plastic waste, and encourage innovation. Noel tweets, oil companies are pivoting to more plastic production. People need to organize against this and lobby companies and lawmakers to end plastic packaging. When I saw photos of waterways in Asian countries clogged with plastic junk, I was sickened. We have to relearn plastic-free living and reject convenience so we can save life on the planet. Planet-hating corporations' greed is out of control, and everybody, everyday people have to stand up and end corporate control or we are doomed." This is true. You've been saying this, Matt, that we are actually ramping up continually our plastic production, even as recycling efforts were put in place, new regulations around single-use plastic. We're not seeing any impact, and the projection is that it will only go up. Yeah, that's that's the plastic industry's bet here, which is that as we decarbonize, we'll be using less fossil fuels as fuels, but they want us to use more fossil fuels as plastic. So um, anything that they can do to increase the production, they're going to do. That's the fight here. This is a fight against some of those powerful and rich corporations on the planet that have a vested interest to their shareholders, like a legal obligation to their shareholders to destroy the planet. And we that's what we're fighting against now. And I think maybe we're seeing a, a bit of a, a turning of the tides here where we're getting more studies showing how terrible plastics are for human health, how terrible they are for the environment. Maybe that helps politicians and governments get better at, at putting, like like we're, the writer saying here, carbon taxes in place would be great, um, as long as you don't make those regressive and, and hurt lower income folks. There's challenges there, but we need to fight this at the source, which is these giant corporations that are legally obligated to destroy the planet. Well, this is tweets. Are there any legal actions going on against the petrochemical companies to make them clean this pollution up? There have been a number of cases brought against Nurdle companies in particular. There's There's been a lot of spills in the um, of the Gulf Coast where they have been sued, and the, these cases were won against these companies for spilling incredible amounts of, of Nurdles. Um, it's, uh, I think, going to be interesting going forward about the ways that we can more tax these these companies and fund, like I had mentioned, these so these smaller scale solutions like rain gardens on roadsides, um, like massively ramp up their taxes for destroying this planet, and then use that money, um, and in particular, put that money in lower income neighborhoods that need more green spaces. In in the case of of rain gardens, so um, there will be more and more environmental law suits brought against these companies uh, for sure. Um, but at the same time, we need to put pressure on our politicians to fix this issue. Who is doing most of the funding in terms of the impact of microplastics, nanoplastics on human health, on the environment? Embarrassingly, the United States is pretty far behind on this, probably because 
the vested interests of, of fossil fuel companies funding so much in the United States, politicians and universities included. Europe is actually leading, leading the way here, both on uh, the just research on microplastics in the environment, but also early studies on human health. Those have really gotten going in the past couple of years, and COVID kind of sidelined that, but those the studies are picking up again, and I think in the next couple of years we'll see some good research tying microplastics to, to human health concerns, especially respiratory health um, and gut health. There's there's one interesting study recently that was linking it perhaps to, to IBS. So these things getting stuck in our, our guts and doing bad things with our microbiomes, that sort of thing. We need, unfortunately, Europe to keep leading the way here. Um, but we also need more money in American universities to ramp up research that is so desperately needed, especially when it comes to human health. Well, Sumita asks, can you name the scientist who conducted the experiments in Utah you mentioned? Uh, yeah, uh, Janice Brainy. Um, she uh, is a fantastic modeler of this sort of thing. She has been working with a number of other microplastic scientists. Um, Steve and Dee Allen are um, also another pair of microplastics researchers who are doing great stuff. They were actually the ones that found that the ocean is burping up these these particles. They do a lot of the atmospheric work. Um, so definitely people to follow there. Um, it's, I hear a lot from when I was doing research for the book and interviewing these scientists, people who never meant to get into microplastics research, but just fell into it. They were biologists or geologists who saw what a catastrophe this is and just kind of became microplastic scientists. We're trying to wrap our minds around the extent of microplastic pollution with Matt Simon, who has put it together in a book called A Poison Like No Other, How Microplastics Corrupted Our Planet and Our Bodies. And you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Let me go to James in the South Bay. Hi, James. Thanks for waiting. You're on. And it looks like we don't have James. Let's go to Gabriella in Redwood City. Hi, Gabriella. Hello. Hi. You're on as well. Thank you. I just wanted to share uh, my own experience. About three years ago, I noticed uh, how many empty bottles I was going through with the dishwashing detergents that I used to uh, wash my, uh, my dishes by hand. And um, that sent me on this quest to uh, reduce plastic, at least in that small aspect of my life, because otherwise it becomes really overwhelming to try to do it all at once. And so um, after much reading, I settled on using Dr. Bronner's Pure Castile soap bars, um, which have ended up avoiding plastic um, in the containers that I was using before. And it's ended up being cheaper. Um, But then that also sent me on this quest of, so what about the the sponge that I'm using? Because when we do the dishes with a sponge, um, we actually see how it wastes away. And, and then we can actually, you know, connect that with microplastics that we are putting into mm. um, the oceans. And so I, um, I decided to create a, um, a scrubber out of 100% cotton that I crocheted together. And that has actually worked out pretty well. It meant a change in my household. But, you know, with time, we all got used to it. And this, to me, is a simple way in which I have ended up reducing a huge amount of plastic that I consume. And I have also shared this with some friends as a Christmas gift. I decided to share this idea with them. And many of them have actually told me that they're going to share it with their families. And I think this also brings up another issue of how many families that are low income or nowadays, you know, with 
the economic pressures that we all have, it's very difficult to uh, just try to implement some of these changes that are good for the environment but are not good for their finances. So suggesting things that are practical and fairly easy to do and may end up saving money may be the way to actually make a bigger difference, especially when it comes you know, um, um, more low-income families. Well, Gabriela, I really appreciate you sharing your mitigation efforts. Um, You know, there are questions, too, just about the future of materials like this. Pete writes, what are the hopes for materials research and the creation of materials that are plastic-like in their utility, biodegradable, like really biodegradable? (laughs) Yeah, first a little bit more cold water, um, and then I'll get to <laughs> to warm water. Um, a cold water on the fact that um, there has been this push lately to do bioplastics, so that is plastics made out of carbon from plants, like sugar. Um, that, unfortunately, to scale that up on uh, the scale that we would need to replace plastics from, from fossil fuels would take up a tremendous amount of land uh, and use a tremendous amount of water. That's just not going to be feasible. It's still plastic. It still breaks into microplastics all the same. But um, as far as these newfangled materials are concerned, I I think that's going to be an interesting frontier. So making them out of things like, you know, mushrooms that you can grow in the lab. There's some interesting work around that. Um, I wouldn't put a lot of faith in in bioplastics, but I think newer materials that move away from just the idea of plastics altogether. So um, just more more cardboard, cardboard, for instance. Um, glass is heavier, but it's much more recyclable, that sort of thing. So new, new materials will play a part going forward. Um, but at the end of the day, we can't lose sight of the fact that we just have to stop using so much plastic. Lisa writes, I read an article about a university student who developed a method using lye to break down most plastics into safe chemicals. Would a foreseeable future include home plastic mediation where we dissolve our own plastic waste? I wouldn't see that necessarily, there is a big push uh, for so-called chemical recycling in the industry, which is um, problematic in its its own right. It just allows the industry to keep producing more plastic as long as it's it's so-called recycled. Um, I, I this I, I hate to keep coming back on it and harping on it. We just got to stop using so much plastic. Um, the issue with breaking it down at the home is that you're still breaking it down into to microplastics and God knows whatever chemicals are associated with that. You'll see a lot recently of researchers find this microbe that can break down plastic and it's like, all right, so what? You're going to release that microbe into the ocean and, and get rid of all the plastic there? Very unlikely. Um, so uh, less plastic, please. I'm begging. We clearly have a lot of concerned, uh, curious um Listeners, I'm wondering if if you could name sort of the one or two first steps that you would recommend right now um, that you think would be effective in trying to get a handle on microplastics. What would they be? I really actually like the, the caller talking about the the sponge that she made on her own and and kind of disseminating among her friends and family. That's why I really like to say that individual action is going to help. That kind of builds into this larger movement. Um, but also you could start working with plastics, um, you know, pollution groups to donate your time or money or whatever. Those are the people who are making the big political progress. Um, and that's how we get those systemic changes. Well, Matt Simon, thanks so much for talking with us. And 
Thank you for helping having me. us see what we may be missing. Yeah, sorry, I don't have better news, but. <laughs> Matt Simon's new book is A Poison Like No Other How Microplastics Corrupted Our Planet and Our Bodies. My thanks to Caroline Smith for producing today's segment, and my thanks as always to you, listeners. I'm Mina Kim. This is Forum. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.